0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for Conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul learning series.
1: You can see from my name on Zoom, uh, I'm Ben Siegel. I'm one of the rabbinic interns at Beth Am this year,
0: welcome.
1: and um, in addition to living in, growing up in the Midwest. Um, I also uh, went to school in New Orleans, and New Orleans is in the South, and what's the big music in the South? But country music. Um, New Orleans has its own kind of style of music, but country was something that was on the radio everywhere. And so I came to love it, if only because I was forced to love it. Um, and um, after I graduated, um, Tim McGraw came out with a song called Humble and Kind, um, and one second, I'm going to share the source sheet now. So um, there's this song by Tim McGraw called Humble and Kind, and what you see at the top of the source sheet is um, the chorus, um, or the end of the chorus, I should say. When the dreams you're dreaming come to you, when the work you put in is realized, let yourself feel the pride, but always feel humble and kind. Um, the song in general is kind of a... Tim McGraw's take on how to live a fulfilling meaningful life um, but this song especially the chorus has gotten me thinking because famous musicians don't often teach us about humility we often hear about that we often hear them see them bragging about their different um, accomplishments which are definitely accomplishments um, but humility isn't necess- is generally not associated with bragging um, so it got me thinking what Judaism has to say about the trade of humility. Um, and so for an opening piece of Torah learning, um, I'm bringing, I want to bring in this selection here from tractate uh, or from a Derech Eretz Uh It's a minor tractate of the Talmud, probably codified after the rest of the Babylonian Talmud. So, Well before the main text we're going to be studying today, but um, nonetheless, um, over a thousand years old. Um, So can I invite someone to read it? If not, I'm happy to read it as well. I can read it. Great.
0: The adornment of knowledge of Torah is wisdom. The adornment of wisdom is humility. The adornment of humility is fear of God. The adornment of the fear of God is the performance of meritorious deeds. The adornment of the performance of meritorious deeds is modesty.
1: Great, thank you, Bonnie. So, as um, here comes my New Orleans um, influence in how I speak. As y'all read this text, um, what do you, uh, what are your initial impressions, and what are you? Taking away from an initial reading of it. Go ahead, Table.
2: Um it just the first thing is, and maybe it's a translation, but I immediately thought of more than one place in Per Kavos where I think adornment is used. There I think there and then there may be one in Proverbs, the one about grandchildren are an adornment for grandparents, possibly. I don't know. I I mean, I I'm just saying it made me think of other texts first rather than particularly this this one. And actually, the thing about isn't somewhere the the uh, I can't remember the name, but on the top of Hebrew letters, when they're like the little feathery things, aren't those seen as adornments? A different kind of adornment. Anyway, I just went off on adornment.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. There, um, it it's not a word that is um, local to this text. The rabbis use it all the time. Um, like with you were what you were saying about the little crowns that are on the top of all the different letters in um, a safer Torah. Um, I can't say that my text knowledge is such that I can hundred percent be certain that what you're saying about parakel is correct, but it would not shock me at all. Um, the rabbis use this word, um, he, like the, a form of this word, Hidur he door um all the time when it comes to, it comes up in with regards to Sukkot as well. So it's a word that the rabbis really like to use. Uh, any other initial impressions on it? The text as a whole.
0: Well, the idea that each of these things leads to the other, and the, the adornment is kind of like the plus of doing whatever the, that thing is in the in the in the list. Um, and I always like I I always prefer to use the word awe instead of fear myself, but that that helps me get to a better place when I'm reading that.
1: That's a very fair translation, um, and frankly, probably the one I would go more with. But it's the one that um, both came with the baked-in translation, and is I also think something that is a little bit more baked into our understanding of Yura as we approach the Yamim Noraim. Um, there's definitely this um, this awe that has a little bit more fear these days than maybe around Hanukkah, Um Once we get past the days, but um, yeah, Alan, go ahead.
3: Yeah, there's a there's another sense here too of hidur, like we talk about hidur mitzvah to make things nicer and nicer. Like when you for Sukkot, when you get uh, an etrog, you want to get a particularly nice one for hidur mitzvah to glorify the holiday. So it seems here as this is going up, it seems to go, each one is making it nicer and nicer as you go through. So that's niut modesty becomes the greatest, the greatest beautification of them all, so to speak.
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, And as we go through the rest of these texts, I think it's also important to see that even early on the rabbis understand a difference between sniut and modesty versus um versus anava and humility. They're not the same exact term. And if you were to read this text, like you're saying Alan, modesty ultimately makes humility even greater, if that makes sense. It it's kind of a couple steps removed, but, but ultimately as you're going up this ladder of different things that make the item make these different traits or um, different traits or actions um, more beautiful. Um, yeah. Every time you go up the ladder, you're making everything that was before a little bit more beautiful. So um, as, as I mentioned um, Anavah can really be this source of beautifying our accomplishments. Humility isn't just there to keep us from accomplishing anything. It's actually there to beautify them. And it's also a necessary part of true Torah knowledge. You can have the knowledge and wisdom of the Torah, but if you're not humble about that knowledge, it's not quite as beautiful. Um, So let's transition for a second because we're talking about all these different things. How would, when we were, when we use the term humble, at least in English, um, how do we understand that? If you said someone was humble, how are they acting?
0: They don't brag about their accomplishments.
1: Great. Other thoughts? Yeah. Um,
2: I I can't. Uh, It just made me think of, and I don't remember the wording of the joke, and you may be too young, but there's an old Jewish joke about the competition of these people in shul about who's more modest. And it ends with one guy saying, look at who thinks he's so humble. You're smiling if you know the joke. Yes. That's what, and Alan's, I just heard Alan's voice, but it did make me think of that joke.
3: Yeah, dealing, it's dealing with rabbis and cantors as they're going there, and, and the shul president. But about who thinks that uh, they're trying to each be up you know, the other in terms of their praise and, and before God and before, before the Ark. But that's. But I, I think that the sense of humility is like being, you know, very, very quiet, almost like self-deprecating and not extolling your virtues or anything. It's just being very. Very low key is what I think of as humble in that sense.
0: You're doing those, uh, whatever the Mitzvot you are doing without any necessary um, thought of being uh, recompensed for it all, but you're doing it just for the, for the deed itself.
1: Great. I think those are all excellent points. And, um, I want to keep Alan's point in mind about self-deprecating because I think that that is, as we go through and see, I think that might be something that is very baked into the word humble and not necessarily baked into at least Musar's approach to Anaba. Um, but it's an interesting thought because it's the first thought that came to my mind too. Yeah. Go ahead, Ty. You can, everyone can just, um, unmute and say what they want to say when we have these open dialogue times. There's no need for... We're a small enough group, so I'm not terribly concerned. We're going to be speaking over each other.
2: Um, the other thing that just reminded me, and I'm, I'm sure this is probably later, but the legend or tradition or folktale of the Laman Vodnik, the righteous 36, upon whom, you know, upon whom shoulders the world rests and all those um, things... It occurred to me though, something you just said then a way it's a very different <laughs> cultural
3: dis-
2: a a different cultural distinction between a culture in which it's very important that someone be anointed or known to be the carrier of the truth and this idea that you if you think you're alumna vognik you're not. I mean, that was a big part of the legend is that they don't even know who they are yet are so essential. And I think that does tie in to uh, this very the Jewish notion of what it does mean to be humble.
1: Great. So just as kind of background, these I'm guessing a lot of people have heard this, but there, the idea is that there's 36 people upon whom the world rests their actions basically keep the world existing and these are all people that literally cannot think of themselves as being the 36 people they would if they were to think that like title is saying it's certain that they're not one of them um so yeah i think there is sort of this baked in notion of humility isn't something that we can if we're seeing it in ourselves, it's likely we're not at the levels that we think we are. Um, but I want to stay with this idea that maybe it's not necessarily something that um, we are incapable of achieving higher levels of. Um, so let's move on to the next text so that we can get a better sense of at least how Musar understands how we can become more humble in our life which is in itself kind of an ironic, or maybe not ironic achievement, but it, trying to go about this is in and of itself anti-humility. But nonetheless, let's try. So just a little bit of background. Musar is a 19th century Jewish movement that's centered around Jew, uh, virtue-based ethics. And the idea was behind it uh, is that when we strengthen our virtues, we become better human beings. Um, it's the philosophy behind it is that for each virtue, we should strive to have the right amount of it. You don't want to be too humble. You also don't want to be not humble enough. Um, and it comes out of, frankly, um, the Litvak Yeshivot of the 19th century, where when you have a lot of men arguing with each other constantly, they get really good at Torah, but they don't necessarily always get good at being good human beings. And so this was kind of a response to that. Um, So the book that we're going to be looking at is um, the Missy Lat This is, I've got the actual text on, I'll have the actual text on the page. I'm just kind of showing my nice little copy. Um, But it's uh, written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lozato, known as the Ramchal in the 18th century in Italy. Um, So before the movement actually starts, it goes back and looks at some of these different texts. And there are texts that come out after the Musar movement begins. Um, And with regards to the Ramkhal, I highly recommend reading his bio. We don't really have time to go into it now, but he's a very interesting individual that doesn't necessarily learn from his own teachings sometimes. So um, take a look at his adult life in particular. This book was written in his young adult years somewhere or when he's somewhere in his early to mid twenties, if I remember correctly. Um, and he writes more stuff after it. Uh, but this is kind of the magnum opus of his work that everyone turns to. So as we go down, um, we're going to be starting in chapter 22, which is one of his three chapters, if I'm remembering correctly on humility and the way that this, works is he goes through a different trait he talks about what the trait is how to acquire it and moves on to the next trait that would essentially be built off of the previous traits so in a certain sense we're coming in kind of late because there are 24 chapters 24 25 chapters in this book um but it's also where he starts talking about humility so this kind of goes back to the idea we were learning earlier from a um, Sutta that all these different things build off of each other and can beautify the other one. Um, so here's our first section. Um, can I get a volunteer to read it?
3: Yeah. The general matter of humility is for a person not to attribute importance to himself for any reason whatsoever. This is the exact opposite of arrogance. And the effects that result from this are the opposite of those that result from arrogance. Um, Can you keep going, Alan? Sure. When we examine closely, we will find that humility is dependent both on thought and deed. For at first, a person needs to become humble in his thoughts, and only afterwards can he conduct himself in the ways of the humble. Can
1: Continue? You get that? Yeah. Just this is like
3: because if he is not yet humble in his thoughts and he wishes to be humble in his deeds, he will only become as one of the deceitful and evil humble men we mentioned earlier, who belong to the class of hypocrites, the worst kind of evil men to be found in the world. Let us now explain these divisions. So
1: how does it feel to be reading, hearing this text?
0: It's not easy to do what he suggests.
1: Not at all. That the part of That part. By the way, that's part of the reason he leaves it to the end of the book. At a certain point, he says, this is what regular people can hope to accomplish. And everything that I'm going to cover from here on out is only for the chosen few, um, essentially.
2: It sounds like the greek you know the greek philosopher king thing and a version of democracy that was less d- democratic but
1: can you can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that
2: um i w- right re- actually when you said can i wish that i could um mm-hmm. i can't remember any specific text just the idea that There are, and actually Rambam picked, I think that Rambam picked it up a little. The notion that it takes a certain kind, of. I'm going to use the word elite, even though I understand that elite has um, some connotations it didn't have in my day, as older people say, but I can't think of a better word. But just that not everybody is able and it would be whether it's cognitively or affectively to understand or act in certain ways. So it then becomes the chosen few.
1: I think that's a and very... I also
2: think, and I also think it's interesting because while hypocrites aren't great, I'm not sure that hypocrites are the worst kind of evil men. I mean, someone who is already... Uh, a murderous tyrant who if they're also a hypocrite is probably a worse kind of murderous tyrant, but I just makes me want to know a little bit more about the author's life past the little I know why hypocrisy seems, seems in this text to be characterized as you can't get more evil.
1: Very fair. Um, I think it's a good reading of the text that it's, um, This isn't something that he thinks everyone can accomplish. And um, it is very difficult to get to this point. And it is sort of a... um, It does take a sort of elite type of person in terms of their humility capabilities. Um, It it takes a certain level of a person to be able to accomplish the sort of humility he's talking about. Um, He's essentially saying... That, in order to keep ourselves balanced in humility um, we need to keep our deficient we need to um we need to keep the thought in mind that no matter what we've accomplished, our deficiencies always overpower our positive traits, and I don't think that that's something that comes naturally to any human being um, it's not something that we're Especially as Jews, we like to maybe not um, brag about our own accomplishments, but our family's accomplishments and our, our yechas and that's not something that's really interacts well with humility. Um, so let's move on and take a look at um, these divisions, as he puts them. Um, Can I get another volunteer to read? I'll probably end up reading as well at some point. So if no one wants to read this one, go for it.
2: I think that means me. (laughs) (laughs) Another volunteer. Okay, for the podcast. Um, Humility and thought is for a person to contemplate and come to realize his truth that he is undeserving of praise and honor. And all the more so of being elevated over his fellow men. This is due to what he lacks and also to what he has actually attained.
1: You, Do you want
2: me to keep going?
1: Yeah, yeah, there'll be a break in a minute, um, but this next paragraph as well is kind of chunked together with it.
2: Okay. Due to what he lacks, this is evident, for it is impossible for a man, whatever level of perfection he may have reached, to not have many deficiencies, whether due to his nature or due to his family and relatives, due to certain events that happen to him or due to his own deeds. for and a quotation, there is no righteous man on earth who does good and sins not. End of quotation from Kohala 720. All these are blemishes on a person which allow him no room whatsoever to become haughty. Even if he has attain many virtues. Nevertheless, these deficiencies are enough to obscure
1: them. So I got a little bit ahead of myself in what I said leading into this, but um, how, how would you even go about accomplishing this thought? Like he, He's setting up in his mind, the idea that you need to always think that whatever you've done, you've, screwed up enough you've not achieved enough in certain places where you should have to um, overpower any feelings of uh, pride as it were anyone have any ideas about how to go about doing that with by the way without sending yourself into a spiral of depression Right. The idea behind humility is not to become is not to go around like Eeyore thinking that you're such that there's no good in the world at all. Let let me phrase it throw a different question out there then. How possible does this feel? Donnie, are you? Well,
0: I, I think it's difficult, but I, I also think that our society today is it teaches from from young ages not exactly the opposite of this, but I think we're thought we're we're told to try to think of ourselves in a positive way, that we are good people, and that we should think of ourselves as being able to do these things. And yet, according to this, we have to sort of think, no, no, we really didn't do that so well. So I, I don't know, it's a kind of a funny funny thought.
2: Ben, my sound cut out for a little bit, so I may have missed some of it. But the end of this just seems so anti-Jewish to me in that, I mean, it's, I think, building on what Bonnie just said, I think, but I thought Jewishly we're always supposed to give the benefit of the doubt that there are examples of the rabbis twisting themselves in pretzels, though that's an anachronistic um, analogy, to find some reason why it really might have been Acting well, why a person did a certain way, that there are all these examples, so to say that deficiencies obscure virtues, unless a misunderstanding to me that's that's not what I think of as one of the very positive ethical and cultural values about Judaism is to try to give the benefit of the doubt
1: so I think there's I think there's a need to make a distinction here because what you're saying. Is 100% correct about how we view other people, but that's not what the Ramkhal is talking about here. He's talking about how you view yourself. And for him, there is a distinction to be made between how you view others and the actions of others and how you view your own actions and your own meritorious deeds, actions, etc.
2: So it, it, w- w- uh, let me ask, does that mean that what he is more worried about that
3: it's if, it's you give,
2: if you give yourself the benefit of the doubt too often, that's going to lead to not just narcissism, narcissism but this, the psychological outcome of not seeing how you, one needs to keep improving. So it's not that you're not supposed to give yourself the benefit of the doubt, but you shouldn't do it too often. 'Cause it's dangerous. Kind of.
1: I, I I think what he's getting at is um I think what he's getting at is that if you if you were to even look at yourself you truly and honestly, you would see that all of your accomplishments in the face of all of your non-accomplishments, failures, etc., are not so great. Essentially what he's trying to do is get yourself is to get a single person to realize that as great as one accomplish as one's accomplishments may be, they make up a minuscule portion of the actual actions that a person takes and the, and so your accomplishment to failure rate may not be as great as you think it is because we always focus on our accomplishments. So, his ideology is essentially to say you may think that you've accomplished things and you have, but it's not. If you look at the net total of accomplishments versus deficiencies, blemishes, sins, whatever you want to call them, there's a lot more of the second category. And so, there's not really something you can be prideful of any single action, but if, as a person on the whole, one might outweigh the other. One probably will outweigh the other, and it's very likely going to be that the deficiencies are what outweigh it. And therefore, it will hopefully both make you not feel prideful and drive you to try and potentially it can be a drive to push you to do more meets go, push you to be a better person. Alan, did you wanna jump in as well? No? Okay. Um, so let's, um, so if this wasn't already depressing enough about what we have to do, um, he's going to take us down a notch in the next section about our actual accomplishments. Um, so, um, I can go ahead and read this because I think everyone else has read, um, that which brings, most brings a person to pride and arrogance is wisdom, For wisdom is a quality in a man himself, in his most noble faculty, namely his intellect. But there is no sage that will not make mistakes and that will not need to learn from the words of his peers, and very often even from his students. How then can he pride himself on his wisdom? One who possesses a straight intellect, even if he is merited to become a great sage and truly distinguished, When he looks and contemplates, he will see there is no room for haughtiness and pride. For behold, he who possesses high intelligence, who knows more than others, merely does what it is his nature to do. He is like a bird which flies upward because of its nature, or an ox which pulls with its might because of its nature. So too for he who is wise. This is because his nature brings him to this. But for another person who is currently not as wise as him, if he had possessed natural intelligence like him, would also have become just as wise. Hence, there is no room to elevate and pride oneself in this. So, according to him, why should we not even feel pride in the accomplishment of wisdom? Alan, are you talking?
3: Here Here we go. Yeah. Now I don't know if you can see me or not. I've been trying to set up the video, but I, I think I might have it on a different mode, but that's neither here nor there. And now I think we have what,
2: your surname. We didn't have your surname before.
3: Oh. Well, there's my surname. Um uh yes, I'm a Brady. In any case, the what what's going on here is that there's a sense of, well, this is what you were born to do, so there's nothing you can really you 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 were you were born to be to be wise and therefore it's nothing that you can um you can't pride yourself from being wise because that's what you were born to do. And I find that problematic because I don't think people may be able to obtain knowledge, but they can't obtain wisdom. You may you may be born with the ability to have great knowledge, but that doesn't mean that your knowledge will lead to wisdom. It reminds me of a line that my son used to share with me when he was in middle school about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, that knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. And that's what you can have the knowledge from birth. You can have the knowledge going forward. But wisdom is something that I think is far different from knowledge.
1: So I'm going to push back here a little bit because I think that there is definitely a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. But I would also, do you think that there are certain people who have a harder time coming to wisdom than others, who maybe need to learn a lesson, maybe need to put the fruit in the fruit salad five times or the tomato in the fruit salad five times before they realize it shouldn't go in there versus just putting it in there once or just seeing that none of the fruit salads they're being served have tomatoes in them.
3: Oh, yes. Some people it takes, you know, says like it's like experience. It's what you get when you don't need it anymore. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it's the same thing that you're going on here is that uh, wisdom, um, um, to obtaining wisdom is, more challenging and more difficult than simply obtaining knowledge. And it can be harder for other people to obtain wisdom, even if they have the same knowledge as someone else. Obtaining wisdom is something much more difficult.
1: A hundred percent. Other thoughts? Bonnie, it looks like you had wanted to chime in at one point. Nope. So not only I agree with everything Alan said, um, and I think there's also this sense that everything that we have in our life, which shouldn't be surprising coming from a rabbi in the 18th century, but to the Ram everything we have in life is a gift from God. And why should you be proud of the fact that you got a different gift from God than someone else or you got more gifts from God? It's ultimately all coming from God. You can't claim ownership over it. Um which can be very depressing and I think can also be something that can give us a little bit of comfort if we're not achieving the levels of humility that we want to. There's, I don't want to call it a fallback, but there is this sense of every person has their level that they're meant to achieve. And if you're not achieving past that level, it it can be a little distressing to think that we're not achieving the levels we want, but also we're only being gifted so much from God in that. Um, I'm curious to hear how it's, I know I can see from Alan's face and also from what he was saying that it's not necessarily the greatest thought and it's not sitting well with everyone or with Alan at least. Um, other thoughts?
2: Um, I don't know. I, I do know why that's not worth sharing that I keep thinking about other religions <laughs> And there's uh, a newer religion out there that an explicit tenant in the theology is that, um, for example, one's wealth is a direct reflection of one's worth in God's eyes, which culturally is very, very different than this, I think. I would agree. I think I- that's where where you were going, which is not just remember that it comes from God, but, Remember that it doesn't necessarily mean it was anything in one's own merit that got this particular gift. That different people get different gifts. Anyway, uh-huh. it just made me think about this, and because it's being recorded, I don't—I'm not going to say obviously which religion, just that it's a newer one, and it's very interesting to me to see the way it plays out. Sometimes, even in our public life in America, adherents to this and it is faith based where then there i think there also becomes which can be difficult if one is used to questioning everything to a sense of um surety and confidence in acting i don't know if things are always a package deal and sometimes that's an advantage to dither too long to see all the possibilities sometimes in life is not a strength though sometimes it is but um, when there's this other cultural worldview that who you are, God endows you with certain things, and that's meant to be for everybody else, a direct re- reflection in the public eye of your worthiness. Anyway, it just it's very different.
1: Yeah. So I think that there is the distinction definitely needs to be made that he in this case, at least for sure, he's talking about different virtues and different um Different personality traits, etc. He's not talking about the actual about material wealth, anything like that. Um, and I think he's all. It's also important to say that he is not saying the lack of a gift from God reflects something upon that person either. What he's saying is that God each gives us different gifts um and different abilities yes. and just as one person may have a higher emotional intelligence capability than another person and another and that same that other person that doesn't have as much emotional intelligence capability may have greater um book smarts because all those different gifts are coming from God it's not necessarily a personal ability it's something that's being gifted from God and so you can't be proud that just as the same way that I love a a needle point that is on my wall that my grandma made me. What do I have to be proud of that I got that? It I didn't make it and it was gifted to me. I didn't even go out and try and find it myself. And so and that's the sort of sense that I think he's trying to set up here is it's not to dither on the th- or to sit in the things that we don't have. It's to be thankful for the things that God gave us, but also understand that their abilities that God gave us, and we've just been putting them into action. So on that note, um, I want to kind of wrap up with this last section, which is um, also about, so if we've gained this wisdom, as Alan put it, to not put tomatoes in the fruit salad, what are we supposed to do with this? Because it is a gift from God, and God doesn't give us gifts to not be used. Um, So the point isn't necessarily to not use the wisdom we have. Um, If there's a volunteer who wants to read this last section, great. If not, I'm also happy to. Um,
2: Ten, do you mean ten? Yeah. Rather, if he possess great wisdom, behold, he is under duty to teach it to those in need of it. Similar to the statement of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, if you learned much Torah, do not take credit for yourself, since for this you were created. From
1: Perki Avos
2: two, eight.
1: Can you keep going with 11, 12, and 13?
2: Sure. If he is wealthy, he may rejoice in his lot, but it is incumbent upon him to help those who do not have. If he is strong, he must help those who are weak and rescue the oppressed. To what is this similar? To servants in a household where each one is charged with a matter, and it is incumbent on each to stand on his appointed position to uphold the affairs and needs of the house. In truth, there is no place for pride here. Behold, this is the type of examination and contemplation proper for every person whose intellect is straight And not perverse. When this will become clear to him, he may be called a truly humble person, for he is is humble in his heart and inner being. This is as David said to Michal, "I was lowly in my own eyes." From Shmuel, base six twenty-two.
1: Great. So, what is we were talking about all these different gifts from God. What is the Ramkhal saying each of these different gifts is? What what's the point of? Great, God gave you a gift. What's the point?
3: The point is to be able to use that gift, le'tovah, to be able to do things to help others. As he says, if you're wise, then to teach; if you're rich, then to help the poor. And that is, and and when you can do that, then you can truly. Achieve humility.
2: Um, also, Ben, for me, it brought up something, I think because it's LLM, we're looking to the High Holy Days, where we come together as a community and ask for forgiveness communally, as in individuals haven't done the particular things. One helps most of the particular things for which they're asking for forgiveness, but we acknowledge communally that within the community, there may be one. So I'll call it a portfolio approach. But this is also a portfolio approach to gifts back, I can't see right now, I'm going to think it was 11, where he was likening to servants in the household that could be human beings serving God, where each is supposed to do a certain thing. and, And if you don't do that particular thing, the fabric of the whole is torn. But to me, this is like one servant isn't supposed to say, oh, I'd rather do the silverware than uh, I don't know, come up with something else than sweeping the floor. You're so lucky you got sweeping the floor that each is supposed to focus on what one has. And in this case, it would be the gifts and one could do and then think that overall, it's the portfolio, it's the community. And that's why I thought of the achates where it's communal.
1: That's a beautiful tie in because um, the point of all this is to prepare us for the high holidays and I think that there is a sense that um, I think the rum call does have this sense that we're each we were each given a gift from God and a different capability of something that we may otherwise be prideful from to make the world a better place as Alan was saying and we need each of us to do this but ultimately we're doing it we're we're Vessels of action for God, um, in a certain sense, and so the fact that we're doing this isn't is to make the the household run, as the Ramchal puts it. Um, and without one person's actions using these gifts for good, the house doesn't run quite as well. The the silverware might get dirty, um, and it still works, but it's not. It's not at its highest level. Yeah, Bonnie, you wanted to say something?
0: Yes, I also think that, that the high holidays are a time to reassess sort of what we think of ourselves and where we are because sometimes due to many things, family, community, whatever, we are led to think that we should be something we're not, um, that that's not really our path. And so it's a time to think about who you truly are inside and what, what that gift is to you that maybe you are trying to be a different gift because someone else has, has put that on you. Um, anyway, it was just a thought
2: that I had just now.
1: Mm. It's beautiful. It is. Um, so I think it's important to note before we kind of wrap things up here that in the same way that the Ram call saying, don't be prideful of your actions. He's also reminding us that we all make mistakes. And so there is this balance of, I, I, I just want to leave it, or I want to bring that in because I know that this can be kind of depressing to think, to get into the mindset of, just think about all the things you've done wrong. But the truth is that we've all done things wrong. We've all screwed up. And so the point isn't to dwell on, that so much, it's more to think about, it's more to get to this last point of understanding that what you have accomplished is um, is only partly through your own doing. And that's really the point that he's trying to, to stick us, um, to stick into our minds. Um, so we've talked about humility for the last 55-ish minutes. And I want to bring up one last point. Um, can anyone guess where the first mention of humility or the word showing up as anava is in Tanakh? Moshe.
2: Um, is
1: it Moses? So that part's right. Where in Tanakh, though, is it showing up? At what
3: book? Was it, it with work? Moses? Was it Moses in, in Shmose, Exodus?
2: Yeah, I was going to say Shmos.
1: So it actually doesn't show up until the Midbar. So we see through two different books of Torah, never mentioned with humility. Um, And I think it's both humbling to think of the fact that the most humble person in our tradition, the the essence of humility um, isn't even mentioned as humble until almost, it's the Midbar chapter 12. So it's not even until almost let's call it um, three quarters of the way through the Torah telling of his story in Torah. Um, but I think huh. it's also important because we can use Moshe as our example to guide us. Um, it's humility, as we were talking about at the beginning is kind of hard to put down into exact words, what it is. But if we think I want to be humble, like Moshe, we can look at all the different ways that Moshe interacts with God. And on the one hand, he stands up for himself. And on the other hand, he's embarrassed when the Jewish people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Um, So as we kind of deal with this tricky subject, you can always turn back to Moshe as your guide of what would Moshe do when it comes to humility. Um, But I think it's also important to bring out that um, Moshe is this humble and kind person and as it turns out, without even realizing it, Tim McGraw wrote a very Jewish song. Um, so my uh, my blessing for everyone as we move into this high holiday season is that we're able to dig deep into ourselves and reflect on the ways that we can obtain some level of balance in this midah of humility, that we don't spend too much time on the... Um, on our in our arrogant self thinking, look at what I've accomplished. But we also don't spend too much time on our thinking about look what I haven't accomplished yet. Um, and as the we were learning in Masachet Derech Haris Harisuta, um, that we beautify our lives and our accomplishments not through pride of those accomplishments, but through the humility of understanding that those accomplishments are done on behalf of God.
3: Yeshikuach.